Father God, we uh, pray for your presence to, to really uh, fill the space. We pray, Lord, uh, that if we have lifted um, our hearts and our needs to you, now you would respond to us um, through uh, instruction and um, the impartation of, of your presence to our spirits. Uh, work in our midst, Lord, uh, even as we, uh, as we listen uh, for your voice. I pray, Lord, you continue to, to heal bodies and embolden hearts and empower spirits. Um, we want to be uh, your people in the world and your people forever. In Jesus' name, everybody says. Uh, okay, uh, question. I have a deeply philosophical question to get started this morning. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? I'm going to give you eight seconds to get to the bottom of this. If a tree falls in the forest, nobody hears it, does it make a sound? All right, what's the, question? What's the answer? Yes? No? Who can say? What's JoJo's answer? We'll never know because we haven't heard it. My skeptical teenager. Uh, yeah, trick question. It makes a sound uh, because God hears everything. Ha! I got you. I'm a pastor. That's just where my mind goes. I'm deeply, deeply spiritual. Um, it's the nature of the universe that hidden things aren't. Uh, it's the nature of the universe that, uh, that silent things uh, are not missed by the Lord. Here's something that's often hidden uh, to others, though. People's hearts are often hidden. Uh, but God sees the heart. We are told that in Scripture uh, again and again. God doesn't look on outward appearances. God looks at people's hearts, and he's sort of uniquely capable of uh, examining and judging people's hearts. You know what I mean by hearts? You know, whatever that internal core thing is. Uh, in our culture, we tend to call that a person's heart. Uh, in Hebrew culture, they, they tended to call it people's guts. Uh, you know, literally the Hebrew word means bowels, which doesn't translate well into English. So we go with hearts typically uh, in Scripture. God looks at your guts. God looks at your insides. He looks at, he looks at your heart. Uh, and there's plenty of warnings in Scripture that we shouldn't try to judge another person's heart because it's just really, really hard to see. But, but here's a question for us to ponder. What does God like in a person's heart? If God's looking at a person's heart and he likes it, what does he like in a heart? Audience participation, what do you think? What does God like in a person? What's that? Softness, which, which means what? Yeah, what is, a, what is a soft heart? A heart that gets hurt easily? Pliable? Influenceable by God, maybe? Something, okay, that's a good one. What else? Vulnerability. That sounds pretty similar, actually. I think we're on a theme here. It's, it, uh, it's not hard, calloused, and insensitive, anyway. That's good. I'm sorry? Yearning, a yearning heart. You guys have such deep answers. A yearning heart, yearning after, after God. Uh, sort of this internal and consistent inclination toward God. I like that. That's good. Anyone else? Compassion. Compassion, yeah. 
Compassion, care, affection, sure, I think Tim had one. What's that? Ooh, integrity, that's nice. So what's going on on the inside should be consistent with what's going on on the outside. I like that. Uh, one more answer, and this one will be the best, so who's got it? Yeah, Ina. A heart seeking God's heart. Seek, I, that's, yeah, that's just a sermon right there. It's like, yeah, uh, God wants your heart to be contemplating his heart and what's at the core of, of him, uh, which I think is a pretty good answer. All right, question part B. If God likes your heart, if he looks at your heart and he's like, yes, she nailed it, he nailed it, what is your life going to be like? If God approves of what's in your heart, what is your life going to be like? What can your expectations be? Anybody got a thought? I'm sorry? Loving. Your life is going to be loving. It's going to be filled with love somehow. There was, what was it? Your life is going to be abundant. Abundant. Challenging. Oh, here's a veteran Christian. I'm sorry? Fulfilled. Abundant. Something about the fruit of the Spirit is going to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and all that good stuff. Yeah, that's good. Well, I'll put a pin in that. Those are some questions that uh, we can be reflecting on as we go through today's sermon. And indeed, as we go through the upcoming sermon series, because we're starting a new one, uh, we're going to do a sermon series on... We're going to do another life, another life in Scripture, and we're going to do uh, the life of, of David. Uh, we've never done uh, a sermon series on the life of David at Blue Water, although we did one right before we became Blue Water. It was like a decade ago. Does that, anybody here remember that series? Yeah, just a handful of us, because almost everyone is, I mean, I knew we were pretty small in, in those days. Uh, have you heard of, of David? We just did a life of Paul, New Testament. This is a life of David from the Old Testament. King David, uh, considered the greatest uh, king of the ancient country of Israel, the ancient nation. Um, we get in Scripture a rather complete story of David's life. It is actually, uh, one can argue, the most complete life story we get in all of Scripture. We get the story of David from the time he's, he's quite young, probably a young adolescent guy, uh, to the time he dies, and there are no gaps in the narrative. Everything's covered. We don't get that in anyone else. We get the life of, of, of Saul, Paul, but we really don't get his life till he's almost 30 years old. Uh, Jesus, we get a little bit about his early childhood, and then there's a huge gap until his story starts again at age 30. Moses, there's kind of like 40 years in the middle when he's out in, in the wilderness after he's originally fled from Egypt. We don't know what went on there. But David, we get a, a fairly robust, complete story uh, from the time that, you know, he's a, a young uh, to the time he dies, uh, probably somewhere uh, in his 60s. Uh, it's a very human life filled with grit and imperfection. David is considered probably the greatest hero of the ancient nation of Israel, and he had some super high moments. He, he had this encounter with a giant. You may have heard about it. Um, he expanded the borders of, of the nation of Israel to their, uh, the greatest boundaries up to that time. 
Um, he was a songwriter of great renown. He wrote a lot of psalms uh, that we now have collected in the book of Psalms, so a fairly prolific author. Uh, he made preparations and, for the temple and really organized the priesthood. He did a lot of things to create a huge legacy. He was also a, an adulterer and a murderer and spent a lot of his uh, young adult years as a bandit running from the law in the countryside. Very colorful guy. Um, so it's a great story filled with drama and, and, and full of obedience to God's principles. It's a life filled with some great feats, but it's not filled with what you would call miracles. No miracles in David's life. It's a possible life, is how I think about it. David did things that were impressive, one way or another, but quite, quite natural. Uh, in, in other terms. Uh, I think he has kind of a relatable life. He's a guy that we relate to, which is why I think people love to read his stories uh, so much. He is called probably most famously, and half of you already have this phrase in your head, a man after God's own heart. Whenever uh, veteran Christians and Bible studiers think of David, they always think of that description of him. He's called a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel 13, when we first kind of get the preview via the prophet Samuel that this, uh, this new king, this, this guy is going to come, speaking of David, uh, Samuel says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. He's speaking of David there. Unfortunately, Samuel said that to Saul, who was the king at the time. And so Samuel was basically prophesying to Saul that he was going to get destroyed and, and a, a uh, more uh, heart-approved ruler uh, would take his place. And then, again, famously in Acts chapter 13, when Paul is giving a sermon, one of the early sermons of one of his early missionary journey journeys, uh, Paul uh, is speaking of David and says, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David is famous for his heart, for what was on the inside. And I think that's the correct lens to approach his life story, but it's not a lens that gives us a lot of automatic answers, because your heart is often hidden. Even in the story, I think it's often hard to observe David's heart, but a heart cannot be hidden from God, though it might be overlooked or misunderstood by absolutely everyone else, uh, including you. Sometimes you don't know uh, what's in your own heart. Heart is deceitful above all things, we are told in Scripture. The purposes of a heart are deep waters, and it takes a person of understanding to draw them out. Hearts are mysterious things. All right, so we're going to start the story today. Uh, everybody uh, cheer me on by saying, hoorah. hoorah! I am not cheered. That was lame. Hoorah! Yeah, see? No, no. Um, Nonetheless, I will persevere because my heart is in it. Huh, see what I did there? Um, 
when we start the story of David, we have to know a little bit about the backstory of the story of David, and I've already alluded to it. Uh, the backstory of the story of David was the reign of King Saul. Uh, and very quickly, um, uh, the Israelites never had a king. Uh, they were led from time to time through their history by somebody that the Lord sort of raised up organically, the man or occasionally the woman for the moment who just kind of had godly wisdom and power at the right time. And the nation of Israel had always looked toward uh, that leader of the moment. Uh, but eventually the Israelites got a little fussy like that. And uh, exactly. And, uh, and said, you know, we want to be like all of the nations around us. We want a king. We want somebody to kind of get behind and celebrate and feel secure about. And so they complained. They complained mostly uh, to the guy who was sort of the man of God of his generation, Samuel, uh, considered by many to be the greatest prophet uh, of the Old Testament. And, and, so, uh, and so because they demanded it, God gave them a king, even though God said, it is unwise for you to do this. You should be led by me and my principles, not by a king, because kings will abuse you and screw up and stuff. But they said, no, no, give us a king. So King Saul gets chosen. Samuel anoints him in secret and says, you're going to be the guy. And then the nation of Israel casts lots. They basically rolled dice to see uh, who they should choose. And lo and behold, the lot fell upon Saul. The story goes like this. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes... The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Basically, they drew straws, and Benjamin uh, was the tribe that was selected by the, the game of chance, so to speak. And then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and every clan leader drew straws, and Matri's clan was taken. And then they drew straws to see, well, which adult man in the tribe would be king. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, oh yes, he's here. He has hidden himself among the supplies. So Saul, from the very beginning, had a great problem with personal insecurity. He said, oh, they're going to choose me king, and I'm scared. That sounds really scary to me. You know, kings have to do things. They have to take charge. Kings get killed in war and assassinated and stuff like that. And me, I just want to, I want to be in the kitchen. I'm going to hide with the supplies. Uh, so that was not a great way to start his reign. And what happens is Saul gets started and he begins making unwise decisions because he's such an insecure fellow. Uh, he sacrifices to the Lord in ways that are against the law. He tries to wrest control of the spiritual life of Israel from the prophet Samuel. And, and, and eventually, Saul's own insecurities start to drive him nuts. He starts to have crazy episodes and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and, and that's the background. And now we're going to pick up the story of the anointing of David. This is where we first get introduced to this great figure of the Bible, King David. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. They're in your program. They're also going to be up here on the big board. The Lord said to Samuel, this chief prophet guy, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? It's like Saul's still king, but yeah, he's already done. Um, his fate is sealed. It's not going well for him. He's not going to repent. So fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. 
But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Um, you know, Saul's very insecure. He's trying to kill people that oppose him. He's become like a, an evil dictator. The Lord said, well, take a heifer with you, that's a, that's a cow, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel's a little scared about playing in politics, but the Lord gives him a, a clever ruse, a way to pull it off without Saul discovering what it is. Like, pretend you're doing a sacrifice, but really you're going there to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. Uh, Samuel says, all right. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel had a reputation of being a, an awesome prophet, but he was also kind of a scary dude. Um, through uh, miracles that God performed through Samuel, Samuel had once like defeated the Philistine army through use of thunder. Uh, when God was really displeased on what was going on in the land at one point, Samuel once called for rain to come at a critical time in the harvest and ruined all the crop. Samuel was not to be messed with. So when Samuel came to town, people freaked out. It was like, uh, are you in a good mood? Are you in a bad mood? Samuel was the man. Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, we're going to have a little sacrifice. We're going to have a little religious service together. So consecrate yourselves and then come to the sacrifice with me. This is a good thing. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Consecration just means to kind of wash ceremonially, get yourself ready spiritually, uh, put on your Sunday best, and then come to the service, that sort of thing. Everybody get ready. We're going we're gonna to do a sacrifice uh, and, and he particularly pays attention to the family of Jesse. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Eliab was Jesse's oldest son. Saying, wow, this is an impressive looking specimen. Uh, Samuel thought, this is probably the son of Jesse that God chose. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Thesis statement. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. Pregnant families, Abinadab, I'm just saying, great name, neglected, but awesome. Great nicknames, Dabby. Uh, and Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. Um, but Samuel said, the Lord is not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the kids you have? Are these all your sons? Uh, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Uh, Jesse, Jesse's family was a shepherding family. They kept some sheep to make ends meet, and the youngest son uh, got tasked with doing the chores while everyone else came to the service. 
Samuel said, we'll send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. It's the kid. It's the snotty-nosed brat. Spends his time in the field, made himself healthy. Um, It's the young one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, took the oil, and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. I'm sure his brothers loved that. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah, which was his headquarters. So an interesting little story there. Um, God sends Samuel to anoint a son of Jesse. Now, Jesse is a poor shepherd. Uh, Later uh, in the narrative, one of Jesse's sons would complain about his dad. You know, our father only has a few sheep. He's not a well-to-do businessman. He's sort of a struggling shepherd, a very poor family. So the fact that God would choose a king from this family is sort of interesting. Um, God suggests a ruse for Samuel's protection, uh, all this trickery uh, just to get there. Uh, Shows up, the village fears Samuel because, you know, Samuel's kind of a scary dude. But at some point, Samuel gets it worked out and says, Hey, Jesse, introduce me to your family. And, and I don't know exactly what Samuel had told Jesse by then, but Jesse is, I, I think, is kind of feeling this might be a significant moment. So, you know, he parades his sons in, in, front, of, in front of Jesse. Uh, and, and, and here's one thing that really interests me about the story. Samuel, arguably the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, is in a position of having to guess which kid it is, right? As God could have said, oh, anoint David, but instead Samuel sits there and watches the pageant, right? And you get the pageant of, of the sons, and Eliab goes first, uh, apparently because he was the oldest, but he was also the most impressive. He was evidently really tall and really good-looking. Apparently this is just a really good-looking family generally. And so this really impressive guy, and, and, and Samuel, right, the prophet, the guy who ostensibly knows God's heart, guesses wrong. You know, why? Well, because Samuel, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, a man ostensibly in touch with God's heart, looks at the outward appearance, doesn't he? Right? It's the, it's the same mistake that sort of got the nation wrapped up with King Saul in the first place. And, and I can't help but get the impression that through this story, this episode, the way that God does things, he's trying to teach Samuel and others a lesson. Here, it's like, look, I gave you a really tall, good-looking, impressive leader in the form of King Saul. It was written of Saul that he was a head taller than the other men. You know, he was the most impressive physical specimen in, in all of Israel. And, and he ended up being a terrible, terrible king, became a dictator, because um, you could look impressive outwardly, but be insecure inwardly. And Samuel has not learned the lesson himself yet. It's just human nature, isn't it? It's just human nature to judge people based on the outside. It's, it's human nature to love and to like people based on external stuff. It's really hard to get an accurate bead on the internal stuff. We have to work really hard to look at someone's insides, so to speak. It is a very rare skill 
even if you are like the greatest prophet of the age. It's a really hard skill uh, to master. So Samuel himself gets a little object lesson here, uh, which I kind of dig. I think that's a nice, a nice part uh, of the story. Um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it. Ironically, by the time they get to David, it turns out that, well, he's a good-looking guy too. He's a, he's a, he's a good-looking young man, glowing with health and strength, it says, depending on your translation. Uh, just a good-looking family. Uh, but, but I get the impression that David, the youngest, uh, was belittled in his family. He was, uh, he was the tail ender. You know, seven other sons, there probably wasn't mess, much left over for him, for him uh, by the time he came along. Uh, and later stories we're going to read here in the next few weeks about David's interaction with his family and his brothers make it clear that he was routinely picked on by his brothers. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to guess that there's a good chance that David had no idea he was good-looking. Um, David had no idea uh, that he even could, could stand next to his brothers and look impressive a- at all. In any case, one gets the impression that David is as surprised as anyone to be anointed the next king of Israel. Nobody saw that coming, not even, not even the man of God himself, the greatest prophet of his day. And then the last thing I like to notice about this story is, is what's not in the story. Often the most significant things are, are what's not there. David by surprise and subterfuge, is anointed king of Israel, and he gets absolutely no operating instructions about what to do next. There's this poor family out in the countryside, you know, there's just all this sneaking around. It's like, all right, you're the king. I'm going home. And Samuel goes back to Ramah and just leaves him there at the mercy of his brothers, (laughs) If you've had seven older brothers, anybody here have a lot of older brothers? You don't want to be left at the mercy of your older brothers uh, when uh, they have a habit of picking on you and belittling you and somebody says, oh, you're great. What is, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? They're going to put him back in his place. And we see some of that. We're going to see some of that in subsequent weeks. But he just takes off, and you've got to consider the context. Saul has become this evil dictator. He's super insecure and super jealous. What, and, 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 and Jesse's family is super poor, incredibly vulnerable. I mean, it's like a super dangerous secret. It's like, it's like the family of Jesse have a container of plutonium. You know, it's like they can't let this thing get out. It will kill our whole village. And that's probably true. And, and, and David gets no instruction, and Jesse gets no instruction. It's like, did that just happen? You know, well, that, that was an interesting day. Back to the sheep. Later on, David's brothers would accuse him of being conceited uh, when David decides that he's going to face down the giant Goliath. You know, everybody's like, shh, let's just keep this to ourselves. You know, let's not let this get out of hand. So what's David going to do? What's this family going to do going forward? It's a cliffhanger. And we're just going to leave it there uh, this week because the story unfolds based on that premise. What happens when the Lord honors your heart? 
and anoints you for special purpose, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you. What do you do then? What do you do then when, like, it seems the whole world is against you, but you know God is for you? It just it sets up as a really interesting story. David gets to unfold his own story in real time. He doesn't get guidance from the prophet. There is no template for what's going to happen next in his life. The only thing that David can do is to be guided by his heart. He has to feel his way through this. And I think that might be one of the reasons that God doesn't give him a lot of instruction about how to become king, given that Saul is reigning and the nation doesn't know who he is. It's like God is saying, well, I think you have a good heart. What does your heart say to do? What do you think is right? Huh. Try it. See what happens. And in that, I think David's life is not dissimilar from ours in a lot of situations. You know, it's one thing to trust God, um, and it's another thing to live as if God trusts you. And I don't know, I sometimes get agitated when God doesn't give me guidance. Um, But over the years, I've learned to read that differently than at first. I think sometimes God is quiet because He just wants me to follow my heart. He wants me to show what I've learned, to do what's right, succeed or fail. It's a good exercise. All right, questions to end. What makes David's heart so great in God's eyes? What does God like about David's heart? We don't know. We're not told, actually. Uh, We're not told in the story. We're just saying that, well, here's a man after my own heart. Uh, We get to figure it out as the story unfolds. And that will be one of the things we keep coming back to in the story of the life of David. It's like, well, huh, what does this story say about David's heart? And and why might God be into that uh, so much? So put a pin in that. That's just something we're going to get back to. If this is one of the great hearts of his age, let's look for clues as to why God says that. Another question you might ask is, well, you know, what is it that has made David's heart so wonderful? Like, you know, what, what's percolating in this young man? Uh, what life experiences has he had that he should be, uh, at, as a teenager, in possession of such a, such a cool heart? And, and we don't know. We're not told that. You know, we can speculate, and I've noticed in, in my years of hanging around Scripture that people do speculate a lot. Uh, people say that, well, I mean, one of the reasons that David had such a great heart is because he grew up as the least in his family. You know, he was ridiculed. He had to serve everyone. He endured a lot of spite and a lot of humiliation in his own family, you know. He's not even considered worthy to be brought in front of the prophet when the prophet comes to town. Um, and, you know, maybe that taught him humility, and maybe that's what has made his heart great. Maybe. Uh, David apparently spent a lot of time alone with sheep, and everybody knows that sheep are great teachers when it comes to spiritual things. Have you ever hung out with sheep? I have a little bit. Um, I think of dogs. The dogs are like our sheep today, and Who's the world's best Christians? Dogs, clearly. Clearly dogs are the world's best Christians. 
right? I mean, they're humble. They, you know, they respect leadership. They might do wrong, but they're great at repentance. You know, they come with their head down and they do the thing and you, you got to forgive them. You know, they're super protective. They let things go. You know, they live in the moment. I'm being facetious, but, but maybe, you know, David just hung out with animals and got humble that way. He learned about leadership and protection and stuff. He takes his, his job seriously. He's given the junk chores in his family, but he's good at them. Um, when we study the story of David and Goliath, we're going to hear David say uh, to Saul, um, when trying to explain why he wants to go take on Goliath with a sling, David says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. So this is a guy when he was a kid who was attacking lions and bears to defend his sheep, his pet sheep. It's like, yeah, that's a great-hearted guy right there. Uh, we know that David loves music. He's writing all sorts of songs to the Lord when he's out there in the field. And, you know, guitarists have the best hearts. Uh, I think that's a, that's a well-established fact, you know. Worship leaders. Where's Ben? Can I get an amen? Thank you. All right. All these things make for good speculation, but we really don't know. And it's probably best just to respect the manner of the storytelling. We're going to discover David's heart as the story unfolds. And I think we're going to discover some things that surprise us because you know what? We're not very good at judging hearts. We might not even be very good at judging even the greatest prophet of his age. Not great at looking at somebody's insides. So let's watch. Let's stay tuned. And that's often how life with God goes, by the way. You just got to stay tuned. You can only guess at what God is seeing in your life right now. Sometimes he shares a bit with you. But our confidence does not necessarily come through knowing everything that God's thinking about at a given moment. Uh, here's another uh, final question to be thinking about as David's story unfolds. Uh, we're told that David's got a good heart, that God likes it. What does that tell us about what David's life is going to be like? Does this mean that his life will be easy? Does it mean that his life will be triumphant? Does it mean that his life will be protected? Well, if you know anything about the story of David, um, like, well, no, not really. I mean, there are some triumphs in David's life, but it was a heck of a life. It was brutal. It was brutal. Uh, when we get to his life when he's in his 60s, his body is so broken down and arthritic that he's just in bed trying to stay warm. He had a rough go of it. Uh, if God likes the virtues in your heart, don't expect a lifelong vacation. Um, he might be more likely to contrive circumstances for you in which the virtues he likes have to be used. For instance, we know that God likes patience. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you have patience in your heart and God likes that you have a patient heart, is he going to honor your patience by giving you lots of success? Or is he going to honor your patience by arranging things so that you often have to exercise patience? What do you think? 
If God likes the faith in your heart, is he going to give you great reward and success, or is he going to arrange your life circumstances in such a way that you need to exercise faith to make it? You kind of know the answer already, right? Um, So consider that as we jump into David's life. What does all this mean for us? What's the takeaway point uh, from this intro to David's life story? You know, we have to guess at what God has seen with David. We don't know yet why David has impressed God so much. You might also have to guess at what God sees in you. You might have to guess at what God sees in you. And if, and if we're just guessing, maybe you want to be careful about how you judge yourself, why you judge yourself. We know you ought to be careful about how you judge others. Scripture makes that very clear. Jesus makes that very clear. But, but in judging yourself, you know, you might not know what God sees when he looks at you. You might be surprised as anyone that God would choose to anoint you with his presence for purpose One of the greatest prophets of all time was not tracking what God was watching in David. He didn't get it at all. You might not be tracking either. You might not get it at all. I think there's a human tendency to often ask ourselves, what makes me worthwhile? What makes me great? Um... We ask ourselves that question so that we can be assured, so that we can focus on it, maybe so that we can take comfort in it or build on it. But the message of this story so far is that you might not know what makes you worthwhile. You might not know what makes you great. You might be guessing wrong, and you might go nuts as a result, because that's what happened to Saul, right? Saul was given a lot of success, but he didn't know what was inside him. He was afraid what was inside him, and so he ended up, you know, killing a lot of people to cover over his insecurities. Insecurity kills leadership. It's a proverb that we speak a lot uh, around here at Blue Water, a proverb that we made up. It's not a biblical proverb. It's just like, oh yeah, one thing that that kills leadership, that kills destiny, that kills purpose. It's, it's insecurity. And self-judgment or self-evaluation of any sort is dangerous uh, because it can, it can breed insecurity. King Saul was consumed with it. He thought a lot about what made him worthwhile as king, and it, it literally drove him nuts. You can't be sure what makes you worthwhile. And so it's smart to be very careful in how you think about it. I wonder if David spent a lot of time thinking about himself. That's what I wonder. I wonder if he was a self-examiner or a self-forgetter. What do you think? Everybody else forgot him. (laughs) So I wonder wonder how he grew up. Um, And I think again about the way he protected his sheep. Follow me here. You're a shepherd in a shepherd's family. You raise sheep. Why do you raise sheep? Hmm? For food. You raise sheep to kill them. That's why you raise sheep. And yet when a lion or bear shows up, you risk your life to protect the sheep that you're going to kill tomorrow. 
Does that make any sense at all? Why would you do that? The life of the sheep is not worth your life. In fact, you're going to sacrifice the life of the sheep for your life in a day or two. You know, going against a bear with a club is not a thing that a man does if he has a lot of self-examination, calculation, and self-regard happening. David had the unique ability to forget himself, I think. And that explains his weird behaviors, why he was surprised. Oh, I'm king? Ah, hey, guys, I'm king. It's like, you just don't, you don't get it, do you? Why should you be king? Ah, I don't know. I, I think that was kind of his attitude. You know, it's like, I think that was his attitude when he was out with the sheep. Bear, hey, these are my sheep. Ah, you know, it's like, that guy does not think it through. He just, he just kind of does what's right in the moment. You know? Oh, there's a giant defying the armies of Israel? I got a slingshot. Get behind me, guys. Like, you are not thinking this through. He just kind of does what's right in the moment. And that's all the preview, I think, that, you know, we should get for the sermon series. There's something about that that just charms God. A guy who just doesn't think a lot about himself but just is free uh, to do what's right in the moment. You know, there's, there's self-confidence, which is a great thing, but there's self-forgetfulness, which might be an even greater thing. You know, there's, there's a sense of worthiness, which is a great thing. You know, we, we often base our identities and worthiness and think a lot about our identities. But then there's shamelessness, which is kind of the opposite of worthiness. And I think that might be one of the greatest things of all. I think David was a shameless fellow. And I think what we're going to see is when he does great, he does it because he didn't think about failure. There's no shame. And when David does wrong, and boy, he could do wrong, he gets over it fast and he moves forward in what he thinks is the right direction. Shamelessness. There's something about it. And so this morning, if we're going to do a, a beginning meditation on the life of David, that's what I recommend. I think shamelessness just trumps judgment. I think that, that, that grace is really more important than even moral judgment sometime, you know? It's like, we're all, we're all messed up. We don't even know what's going on in the inside of ourselves, let alone others. Um, a community of shamelessness somehow moves forward, though. Just food for thought. It's just food for thought. Let's pray. Um, I pray, uh, Father, um, that you would stir us in our guts this morning. that you would free us from judgments that other people have placed upon us, maybe from our brothers and sisters and parents and those close to us, but maybe from others as well. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would free us from uh, the darker bits of self-evaluation, 
And I pray instead that you would firmly anchor us in the heart of God, which is, uh, I think, a uniquely uh, shameless place. We know uh, we're not going to be perfect, Lord, but I pray that you would give us the ability to move forward uh, and to do the right thing uh, without overthinking in our lives. And I just think that's a message for some of us here this morning. Move forward and do the right thing. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. There's a special grace in that. There's something in that that really delights your Heavenly Father. As someone who's not scared, at least. And that's a beautiful thing. In Jesus' name, amen.